Darren Jones, born in 1986. I grew up in my constituency in a council estate called Lawrence Weston. Witnessed the impact of government policies early in life. I kind of didn't really want to be poor anymore. He became the president of the Students' Union at the University of Plymouth before becoming an in-house lawyer at BT. He initially stood to become a Member of Parliament at 25. So, um, having lost that election, I went back to work. He persevered and became the Bristol North West MP. About two hours before the vote was declared, we realised that we'd won largely by accident. Aged just 30. In his maiden speech, Jones proudly acknowledged being the first ever Darren elected to Parliament. One of us will have to become the first knighted Darren at some point. <laughs> In 2020, when Keir Starmer appointed Rachel Reeves, Jones became chair of the Business Select Committee. I thought, well, that sounds interesting. I'll give it a shot. One of the biggest jobs in Parliament at just 32 years of age. Talk about you being Jude Bellingham, the liaison committee. He has developed a reputation for holding businesses to account, from P&O to Royal Mail. This is your problem, guys. Not, like, we can help on some things, but if you want to sell your stuff, You've got to find the customers and create the market conditions to sell it. And it's very much seen as a rising star in Labour ranks. A lot to aim for. When we went to the Apple office, it felt a little bit like you were visiting another world. I was terrified that if I like left a fingerprint on a glass window, I'd be killed by an algorithm or something. On to today's episode. Darren, welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Pleasure to be here. So tell us, what's the job of the chair of the Business and Trade Select Committee? So uh, as a chair of a select committee, um, you are elected by all MPs as a cross-party job on behalf of the House of Commons mm. as a whole to be the check and balance of your relevant department. So I hold the ministers and officials to account in the Department for Business and Trade on behalf of Parliament. And how do you decide what issues to investigate? So we do a number of things as a select committee. There are kind of some day-to-day -day procedural things we have to do. We look at legislation, take evidence on legislation, sometimes in more detail than others. There are certain mechanisms where committees have to sign things off on behalf of the government, mm -hmm. um, uh, which we which we do as they we hold ministers to account and officials. And then we decide on inquiries. And these can be topical inquiries where we're responding to something, um, or they can be kind of longer-term deep dives into policy areas. So we recently published a, a long inquiry report on the UK labour market and yeah. what that meant for economic growth. That's the type of inquiry that's a, a deep dive. We've responded to topical issues like the dispute at Royal Mail. Um, and then we have certain other things to do. So we have to scrutinise the national security and investment and the, the use of its powers. And so we have to try to timetable all of those things uh, across the time that we're here in Poland. And what is it a... Is it a democratic system with the other MPs in terms of deciding what the longer term deep dives are going to be? Because you'll have some MPs that you know, have particular hobby horses that they want to do more detail into. Yeah, it's definitely a committee process. So on my committee, there's a majority of Conservative MPs. I'm a Labour chair, but it's my chair. My job as chair is not to decide, it's to facilitate the discussion. Um, and then I have three Labour colleagues and one SNP colleague. And we generally plan a few months in advance and we'll get together. We call it the forward programme. Um, and members of the committee have the opportunity to throw in whatever ideas they might be interested in. Um, we then get lobbied uh, yeah. by external stakeholders, by MPs who are not on the committee but want us to do things. Yeah. And as I say, we then get asked to do things on behalf of Parliament. And what? how, how big is the team that supports the committee structure? Well, I think I probably have more staff than other committees, so I'm a bit reluctant to, to declare our small empire building. <laughs> I mean, I... I, I, I I think we, so we have a core team of full-time staff yeah. who work just for us. So we have, uh, I think we now have four um, policy specialists, and then we have uh, two what we call clerks, and they're kind of House of Commons procedural experts. Yeah. And then we have um, a media communications person, and we actually have one and a half media comms yeah. people. And then we have access to other specialists. So for example, our national security work we have access to three different people as and when we need them. So all in all, I think we're probably between eight and 10 full-time equivalents. And then for particular inquiries, we can hire special advisors in as well. Um, and so the number can fluctuate a bit. 
And what does the national security add? Well, it's new for us. So the National Security and Investment Act was a new piece of law that came in um, just over a year ago. It allows ministers to intervene in mergers and acquisitions of companies within 16 defined sectors, some of which are very broadly defined, like AI, um, where the government thinks there may be a national security concern. And that applies to inward and outward investment. So it's a very expansive piece of law. um, uh, And our job is to be the check and balance on ministers' use of those powers. So we've got to a point where most of that has to happen in private because of national security. And then we do certain things in public, like review the annual report and trends. And and why did you decide that for, for this committee? What was it that appealed to you about the business? Well, I mean, I come from a, I was a lawyer, but I worked in the kind of commercial sector and I worked in energy and technology. Um, and so it seemed like a great fit. The, the committee for most of my time has been the business energy and industrial strategy committee. It's only recently become the business and trade committee. And I, I mean, it wasn't part of any kind of career development plan. It's just that um, Keir Starmer didn't give me a job. Uh, and so I had kind of time on my hands and the opportunity came up because Rachel Reeves, who was the former chair, became what was then uh, Chancellor of Duchy of Lancaster before she became Shadow Chancellor. Um, and I thought, well, that sounds interesting. I'll give it a shot. And I was up against some very formidable Labour um, colleagues. Um, but for various reasons, I was able to unite the Tory party behind me, and there's more of them, and so I won the election. Um, and, I mean, it, it isn't, politics is such a game of snakes and ladders, and your story is pretty remarkable having, I mean, you, you were elected quite unexpectedly. Yep. You sort of said, your, said yourself, but not only was it unexpected in 2017, but the whole general election, uh, I can attest to, was, uh, was rather <laughs> unexpected. <laughs> um, like, but to, to talk us through that, that period, because it must have been a crazy few weeks. Well, I was first selected by the Labour Party for Bristol Northwest, my constituency, in November 2012. Yeah. It was a key seat for us for the 2015 election. So there was three years, basically, of slogging, kind of marginal seat campaign, which um, I see candidates now doing it, working really hard. I kind of get a bit of PTSD about it because it's like a tough gig. Um, and that was the election where we we thought we might win and Ed Miliband thought there might be like a coalition Labour government. Um, and my seat was like the very cutting edge of that. It was one of those marginal bellwethers. Um, and as it turned out, both nationally and in my seat, we were nowhere near winning. <laughs> David Cameron got a very comfortable majority. Um, and so um, having lost that election, I went back to work. Um, uh, I became an in-house lawyer at BT. Um, had moved to London. I was implementing GDPR across the BT consumer business um, with some other colleagues. And I remember sitting at my desk and I had two screens as a lawyer because it makes you feel important and learned. And I, um, I'd had the BBC News on one screen. And when everyone was looking at the lectern outside number 10, and it's like, oh, the government seal isn't on it. Theresa May is going to call an election. And I was kind of, I just stopped typing and thought, oh God, what am I going to do? Am I going to stand or not? And, you know, I'm not, I was not a supporter really of Corbyn project. And I thought, well, if I didn't win in a seat like mine with Ed Miliband, I'm probably not going to win under Jeremy Corbyn. And, um, and I thought maybe I'll just miss this one, miss this one out. But I was persuaded to stand, um, both by my wife and my local party, um, for different reasons. And, um, and then about two hours before the vote was declared, we realized that we one largely by accident as a consequence, I think, of Brexit. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's remarkable. And what what were your first reflections when you got got elected? Well, first of all, I told my employer there was no chance of me being elected, and that <laughs> I'd be back to finish implementing GDPR. Um, so, in fact, my boss at the time, uh, a woman called Lisa, ended up being on I think Radio Four Today program afterwards explaining how it was okay there were lots of lawyers at VT and you know <laughs> they, they would manage without me uh, which they've done admirably um uh yeah and you just got on with it really I mean it was great I mean obviously I wanted to be an MP I wanted to be an MP for my constituency it's where I was born and grew up and where I live today and having not had the chance in 2015 to unexpectedly have the chance in 2017 was you know exciting and why did you want to be an MP because you you have put a lot of effort and you've had to fight a few times <laughs> yeah um, I mean, I've always been kind of interested in, in politics. I mean, as I say, I grew up in my constituency in a um, council estate called Lawrence Weston um, in the 1980s. And kind of two things stuck with me as a kid. I, I kind of didn't really want to be poor anymore because, you know, that's 
not a nice thing for anyone. Um, and I also didn't want to be kind of disempowered. I felt as a kid, a lot of the time that things were happening to you and you didn't really have any power to do anything about it. And I just felt the unfairness of that. And, you know, I was only 12, um, at the time, but I remember the 1997 general election, the national minimum wage completely transformed uh, my family life because my parents you know, earned more. Um, and then the Labour government's focus on education and what was called the gifted and talented program meant that people like me, even though I went to one of the worst performing state schools in the country that got closed down, I was able to be the first in my family to go to university. So I, I experienced the, the, the effects politics can have on transforming people's lives in the country. And that stuck with me. And I kind of wanted to play a part in that. And what's, what do you see as the government's role in creating jobs? Like, where is that balance between sort of, you know, allowing the market to do its work and where can government? Well, government employs people in the public sector, mm -hmm. and I'm hoping that public sector reform will become a much more important part of the political debate going forward, because I think it's urgent and necessary. So the state is an employer in yeah. that sense. In the private sector, the state does not employ anybody, um, and it's for the market to create those opportunities. But increasingly, for various reasons, we've seen a need for government to partner with the private sector to create the conditions for investment and growth, whether that's around public infrastructure, supply chain resilience, um, improvements on you know trade, especially after Brexit, um, and making the case for uh, foreign direct investment or multinational organizations to want to pick Britain as the place to invest and run their business. And the state does have a role to play in that space. And so how do you think a, a kind of future Labour government might go about doing that? Well, I mean, we symbolically have said that we have an industrial strategy, which in Westminster lingo means the state will play more of a role. Yeah. Um, businesses have been calling for that. If you talk to the car manufacturing sector or semiconductors or whatever it might be, you know, their investors are looking at other places around the world to spend money. Um, and so we've got to help make the case for the UK being the destination for that, that money. And we've said we'll be more involved in that. And some of that's about convening, coordinating, mm -hmm. taking a, a whole supply chain view um, and working with um, uh, you know, businesses and trade unions and others to, to, to provide that investable proposition. And then the other half is the infrastructure piece. So this is why we have what's called the Green Prosperity Plan, commitment to borrow to invest under a Labour government um, on things like national grid infrastructure, fixing the grid connectivity problem for energy intensive industries and for offshore wind farms, onshore wind farms to be able to connect um, and having a more interventionist approach on skills policy, which is completely lacking in the country. So you can see there already the shape of the type of interventions a Labour government would make, which I hope would be welcomed by business. And on skills of the future, you obviously interview lots of business leaders on a weekly basis. What are they saying are the skills of the future? What's the feedback you're getting on the committee? You hear a lot about... Um, you know, digital skills. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I often say that we kind of need to rewind and just start with skills. I just don't think we have a skills policy in the country. So if you talk to workers, you know, where do you go if you want to learn something new or indeed learn anything if your business doesn't provide a kind of structured internal training program, which most of them don't? I mean, you could go back to university. Yeah. You, you might be able to do an open university course. But that only really works for some people and there's just nowhere else for them to go. And that's why the technological transformation is something that many workers fear as opposed to seeing as an opportunity. So we've got to get like the whole system built in partnership with business so that you can then talk about the types of skills and training that people want to have access to. Um, I also think there's a case for other types of non-hard skill learning and leadership and management often comes up quite a lot. How do you effectively run businesses as well as using, you know, digital solutions to improve productivity but increasingly how are you creative and innovative and connecting mm -hmm. the dots between different spheres of thinking um but I, I really think we're starting at ground zero on this and it's really really important to ceos because they say they can't hire the people they need in the quantity they need in the locations they need it and with the skills that their business requires and what came out in that sort of labor market analysis that you did on the, on the committee because it does seem this quite sort of strange time that you know employment is is quite high actually but everyone is very nervous about what's coming down the track when it comes to the economy and jobs what what did you find in that labor market analysis the thing that surprised me is the is the stats that are used about employment 
Because one of the main reasons that employment is so high is because there are so many people leaving the labor market. Yeah. So the size of the pie, the number of available workers has shrunk a lot, which is why the percentage of the people left in work seems high. But actually, it's a real terms problem for workers, uh, for businesses, sorry, because mm -hmm. the workers are not available. We, I think it was around half a million people had left the labor market since the pandemic, predominantly over 50, but not entirely. And around half of that was for ill health and the other half was for other reasons. Government's trying to get some of them to come back and, you know, that's probably a good thing. But at the macro level, we're an aging society. So there will be over time fewer people who are economically active. And that's why the migrant labor figures are so high because you're reliant on workers from overseas to come and help us. It's just they've, the destination has changed. They're not European anymore, but they're coming yeah. from other places around the world. Troubles you about those kind of demographic changes, right? Because there are some things there that you know we just can't alter. Right? Like people, we are just going to have an older and older society. No, and we did a we did some polling as part of our select committee report, which is quite an unusual mm -hmm. way for us to use our budgets to talk to over fifties who had left the labour market to ask them these questions. And it will work for some of them, but it won't work for many of them. But also, like and I say, this as a politician of the left, government in and of itself is not the answer. Yeah, like we can't expect our departments and kind of systems here to just solve all of these things. That's why I'm so pleased that Keir talks about his national missions, because what he means by that is that, you know, private sector, public sector, uh, public services, government, like all of us have to get behind really pushing the country forward because no one part of the puzzle can, can do it alone. And, you know, the big fear is that if we don't fix it, there'll be fewer people in work, fewer people paying tax, businesses won't be able to grow, less profits to tax less money coming into the treasury, less money for public services. It puts us in a really, really difficult position. Um, and I think the answer to all of those issues is around technological reform. And well, let's get into, let's get into that. That's good. So great. Let's <laughs> do this job. Um, what's, uh, yeah, what technological kind of, what, what technologies excite you first? I think quite a lot of technologies are, are quite exciting. There are some really basic things like, you know, in the private sector, most businesses are not using e-invoicing like software mm -hmm. uh which is not that sexy but like really important yeah um lots of businesses are not using digital solutions for marketing um or to make it easier for their customers to buy their goods or services online you know there's some really basic digital adoption problems uh in the uk um and in many ways i'm not kind of suggesting that a particular platform or tech is the answer technology is the answer what i do know is that we have to solve the productivity problem both because we want to improve pay and profits in the private sector and because we have to reduce the cost of running our public services. And the only way I can see doing that is by creating the opportunities, which are different in private and public sectors, for rapid adoption of technology and digital solution. Uh, for those watching on YouTube, we will put a graph up showing the kind of productivity crisis from 2008 because it's, it's really, uh, it is really striking. Um, how can we, how can we Improve productivity, right? So, in the private sector, the whole incentive framework is wrong. Business owners, on the whole, are not incentivized to integrate digital solutions in their business. Uh, post COVID, unexpected debts, high interest rates, difficult trading and economic circumstances. Most, most business owners won't even know what tech solutions exist, let alone how to integrate them into their business. It seems like a bit of a hassle. Yeah. Is it really necessary? They're not incentivized to want to jump on those opportunities. And as I said earlier, workers look at it and think, oh God, I don't know. Am I going to be able to do my job? Do I have the right skills? Is my job just going to go? Yeah. I, they're scared of it. You're never going to get the rapid adoption of tech to solve the productivity problem unless you flip the incentives, both for business owners, investors, and for workers. And that's not about the treasury paying for things. It's not entirely about legislation. It's mm -hmm. a whole mind shift that needs to happen in our economic and political institutions. And unless we do that, it's just not, it's just not going to happen. Do you think we need British business to be more ambitious in that case? We do. Most businesses are small businesses, right? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, you probably have heard from think tanks and others, the long tail where, you know, the biggest businesses and the like, largest businesses are actually fairly good on various measures of tech adoption, but then as you go down the tail, everyone gets a bit rubbish at it. But actually, most of the tail is small, medium-sized enterprises that make up most of our country. Um, and we've got to try to find or construct the mechanisms so that 
it's easy for them to get the information, support, and access to integration of technology in the business. The state has a role to, to play in that, but the market also has to respond. I was at a Tech UK conference recently, mm. and my, the question I was asked was, what's government going to do to fix this? And I'm like, this is your problem, guys. It's not like we can help on some things, but if you want to sell your stuff, you've got to find the customers and create the market conditions to sell it. <laughs> like, don't ask me as a you know, politician to do that for you. So there is, I think, a much bigger ask to be made of business about getting this right. Speaking of, of that kind of attitude, one of the things that I thought about would get lobbied on when I was in number 10 would be, yeah, we just want this government to make the case for business more. And I would sometimes sort of, in my slightly more flippant moments, push back and say, you know, someone else who can make the case for business is business itself. I just want to take a moment to thank today's sponsor, Huel. I started using Huel two and a half years ago, and so I've had it for over 1,000 breakfasts. Huel is a nutritionally complete food. Every meal contains a balance of 26 essential vitamins and minerals. The Jimmy's Jobs team is powered by Huel. At the start of every episode, we test the mics for the interviews and always chat about what we had for our breakfasts. We discussed it with today's guest. So that's pre-2017 then, so yeah. that really is an early adopter. It was the, yeah, like the, when you've got the bags of powder and how to kind of shake it up yourself. Now, I think it's, they've got it pretty spot on. I was definitely a Huel skeptic when starting out, but now I have it every day. I find it convenient, filling, and above all, just really tasty. If you want to try Huel, I would recommend the mint choc chip and banana flavours. Find your flavour by going to uk.huel.com forward slash Jimmy or check the show notes below. Huel, food for the future. There's been a lot of drama around over the last couple of months with everything that's been happening at the CBI and so on. What are your kind of reflections? Well, I mean, obviously the individual cases that led to the problems at the CBI are, are, are deeply sad and, and troubling mm. and unfortunately not unfamiliar. I mean, Parliament's had to deal with those issues yep. as well. Um, and, you know, there's probably a whole other podcast about workplace culture and yes. labor legislation reforms and the rights of victims and power imbalances that we still need to get right in this country. Um, the kind of organizational question for the CBI, though, is will it therefore continue to exist and have influence in the way that it felt it had before, and for which it was recognized by governments of all parties and parliament as being the voice of big business yeah. in the UK. Uh, now, they've had their EGM, their membership has backed them, but challenger brands have popped up in the process. Mm -hmm. um, and it will be interesting to see you know, what happens going forward. The one thing that we often rely on, though, as a select committee, for example, is that organizations like the CBI have, you know, pools of talent who are economists, people that can, you know, do some of the costings or economic projections around policy proposals. We don't always get the capacity to do that. Um, and so you do rely on those trade bodies to do the evidential work that underpins the ask from business. And it would be a shame, I think, if we, if we lost that. Do you think business groups do make a good case for business, though? Um, I think so. I mean, my, my slight frustration as the chair of the select committee is that sometimes businesses are either too nervous or unwilling to appear themselves and kind of hide mm -hmm. behind their trade bodies a bit. But trade bodies then have a difficult job because they're trying to balance the needs of lots of businesses. And often the messages get a bit kind of fudged or diluted as a consequence. And I think maybe that could be a bit, a bit better. Um, there are a lot of trade bodies as well, I've noticed in this yeah. country. And one of the things we've seen with the CBI is that there are a lot of trade bodies who then become members of trade bodies. And I do wonder a bit sometimes about what's the strength of the real shop floor, to use a kind of pretty old phrase, kind of evidence once it goes through three or four trade bodies before it becomes parliament. Kind of an interesting question. And who do you think has made a good case for when you get actual businesses in, in front? Who's kind of made you think, oh, that was, you know, I've learned something there that I hadn't appreciated before, honestly. Uh, there's a couple of, I mean, generally in terms of, appearing before a select committee, it's always better to just answer the question. Um, if you don't know, say you don't know. Um, and if you can't answer it for whatever reason, say, I'm sorry, I can't answer it. And you can always say, I'll write to you if you want more detail. The best thing is to do is speak in plain English as well. So, you know, I've been involved in stuff on digital government, quantum computing, semiconductors, you know, I had no idea about semiconductors before we did the inquiries. It's quite hard for policymakers to yeah. really understand. And with dealing with this now with AI and generative AI to even understand like what it, what it means and what the real risk profile is and then what the policy response might be. So businesses that communicate well 
are, are probably the best place businesses and who are direct about that. Um, uh, on the semiconductor inquiry, we had lots of great UK businesses that were very frank with us about the risk to UK PLC and what's yeah. happening in America and other places and explained what we were good at and what we weren't good at. And that really helped us make, I think, a good set of recommendations to government. Um, and what's talking of AI, it is the red hot topic at the <laughs> moment that everyone is, is discussing. Um, what have you been your impressions of when you have played with it yourself? Well, it's probably not as, uh, advanced as maybe we think. <laughs> so it's probably what I was, probably my sense of it. I mean, on the one hand, I'm thrilled that we're all talking about it. I mean, I, because I'm a bit geeky on these things, I've been talking about it for, well, for, for as long as I've been here, mm. just that no one was really listening very much. And when I first arrived, you know, I ended up setting up this international network, which we call the Interparliamentary Forum on Emerging Technologies, uh, which is basically like other geeky legislators around the world that catch up on Zoom once a quarter to talk yeah. about this stuff. Um, because no one was talking about it. It wasn't really happening anywhere. And now you do like, you know, mainstream TV and suddenly you're asked about AI. On the one hand, that's great. On the other hand, because it's quite conceptually hard for people to understand and visualize, some of the narrative is running ahead of itself. Like we're not all going to be dead, like in two weeks and like, yeah, you know, they're yeah. not going to be killer robots. There are some na national security risks and we do need to respond to that. Um, uh, but I'm thrilled it's kind of more of the mainstream debate. And I think the potential to go back to my whole soapbox on rapid technology adoption in the economy, I think there is enormous opportunity uh, around AI advances in that, so long as we can mitigate the risks and support people with those changes. Where do you think it could have most impact in the public sector? Probably dealing with admin inefficiencies, yeah. appointment bookings, sharing of information between services, I would love to see, uh, you know, a gov.uk app store yeah. where we guarantee the kind of cyber privacy standards, but services can innovate in the way they deliver public services or, or, or appointment booking or, you know, a bit like open banking and the way that banking yeah. apps have worked. What, what could you do with, with that in terms of your engagement with public services? Um, and I think we can fundamentally scale up access to public services, which is a big issue for the public right now. I think we can improve outcomes, which is a big problem with our public services right now. And I think we can reduce the cost, which is obviously a big problem because we can't afford the cost at yeah, the moment, yeah. hence the national debt. So just clarifying on the bit you were saying before, you actually put together a kind of like international legislators group on, on Zoom then for AI. Yeah. What were your kind of learnings about doing that? Well, I was actually surprised how many of us were interested. So, <laughs> I mean, when I first got here in 2017, like it wasn't really happening here in the Commons and I looked at the other multilateral organizations that like MPs go along to, and it was all pretty old school, like stuff. I mean, the climate stuff was, was happening and I was into that. So that was good. But like, if you wanted to go and talk about tech, really legislators were talking about like tanks yeah. and like fighter jets and things. No one was really talking about AI. Um, there's been some changes on that now. The OECD is better at it. The UN's moving a little bit into that space. And I just said to my office, Hey, can we like Google some people and write to them and say, do you fancy like chatting about it? Um, and I wasn't really expecting huge amounts of interest, but there was load. Um, and Zoom really helped us to do that because, of course, we don't have international travel budgets. So we can't just fly around and like yeah. chat with each other. And we we meet once a quarter. Um, we have an hour in the morning for Asia Pacific, an hour in the evening for the rest. Yeah. Um, it's an hour, an hour and a half tops. It's entirely private. Uh, it's open on a cross-party basis to all legislators in any country. Um, uh, and we have some really interesting speakers who are normally senior multilateral or senior business people come and talk to us and seems to work quite well. Uh, yeah, I think it's, uh, it's really good. What, what, a bit, well, without breaking any of the privacy and so on, what, what have been some of the things that you've kind of gleaned from that group? What, what are other countries doing? Well, I mean, there's a couple of things. One is, I think the, the, the level of understanding within kind of legislative assemblies in various countries, you know, it needs work. Yeah. Um, and this space is a great way to do that because you can ask what you feel is probably stupid questions and you get people to start like with the basics. Uh, the other thing I think is the, um, at the multilateral level, the system wasn't quite working. It's still not quite working, which is why some of the debates now, you know, the prime minister in DC recently talking about maybe new intergovernmental bodies or agencies, they're all of the G7 or others. Um, there's definitely work that needs to happen there and we've spotted that. Um, but also there's a lot of shared kind of policy questions or concerns. So even 
very different countries. The legislators actually are all kind of asking the same types of questions and looking for the same types of answers. So I think there's an opportunity to not try to, you know, replicate effort everywhere if there was a bit more collaboration. Um, and do you think there should be some sort of international regulation? Uh, well, I think there, there's a couple of things. I think there should be collaboration between governments for countries that have the handful of companies that are really operating at the large scale on generative AI large language models. There's only probably a dozen of these companies that have the compute power to do the things that we're a bit worried about. They're predominantly in, in America, UK, Canada, probably the EU coming pretty quickly. And then China, China's a, a difficult yeah. issue for various reasons. So I think we should be collaborating on, in that way. Um, I think if there is an intergovernmental agency, a bit like CERN with its own compute power or that has kind of auditing oversight, I think if that were to happen, it'd be great to host that in the UK, but I would be pretty surprised if countries like America, others are willing to share sovereignty over American yeah. companies. So I'm not entirely convinced it will happen. But then I do think that the formal existing structures at the ITU, at UNESCO, at UN, you know, we should be in the West making the case for standards and standard settings within those bodies. So, which has for a long time been driven a lot by the Chinese in the chi in the interest of Chinese innovation. Yeah. Do you think it'll be something the committee kind of looks at? You've got you know probably another year till the general election and so on. Uh, well, we've only forward planned up until um, the summer recess because we've just taken on this international trade brief and we're yeah. just getting our hands around that and figuring out what we want to do. Um, uh, because of our national security and investment oversight, we will be asking more questions soon around AI and national security yeah. risks. Um, uh, we're involved with the Competition and Markets Authority on the Digital Markets Bill, which has had some pretty high profile case studies with Microsoft Activision and others. There's a kind of interesting debate about the getting the balance right between regulatory intervention and economic policy that we will engage on. Um, but technically, because there's a new Department of Science, Innovation and Technology, it's Greg Clark's committee now, which went from the Science yeah. and Tech Committee to the Science, Innovation and Tech Committee that will probably lead on these issues. But it is, it could be such a fundamental, you know, we talked about productivity earlier, you know, it, it could be the silver bullet that ends up solving. Yeah, I think that's right. And it was certainly a big part of our labor market inquiry because mm -hmm. not to repeat myself on incentives, but at the moment, there's lots of examples where tech is kind of put on workers and ends up being either used in a way that surveys them or sets an oppressive kind of culture or ends up creeping into doing that. And then workers and unions rightly get very cross about it. Um, as opposed to businesses working with workers from the start about the implications of technology and work. And so we recommended they should kind of flip that and do it in a better way. But we will definitely continue to look at that as it relates to the labor market, work, workers' rights, trade unions, and all that type of stuff. Um, and how do you think, what are the opportunities for trade unions in terms of like the way that they kind of organize themselves and inevitably in a, a labor market that gets more fluid, that gets you know, more kind of freelancers and, and all that side. What, what, what are the opportunities for, you know, labor organization? Mm. Well, the, the transition has been well known by the trade unions for a long time. Mm. You know, we don't have lots of factories with, you know, workers on the shop floor organizing the way we did, um, in the you know, 1970s and eighties. And they've struck a lot of the unions have struggled a bit with the transition to a service led economy for various reasons. Um, but actually the kind of technology-led economy, there are some unions, and I, I should say I'm a GMB member, and I'll give the GMB as an example, where they've actually worked really well. So the GMB's done a deal with Uber. I was at GMB conference recently and met the Deliveroo team. They've done yeah. a deal between Deliveroo and GMB. Um, and the, the union has innovated in the way that it represents and supports workers within different structures of work and has been able to do deals with companies, which the companies themselves say kind of is a selling point for them because they know that workers working on their platform get the benefit of that. So there are opportunities that, that unions are carving out for themselves in this space. And what do you think the sort of jobs of the future look like here? If you were sort of 22, 23? Do you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert, but my, my sense is, is that if I was that age now, I'd probably try and get as broad and creative an education as possible. I, I tried to specialize quite quickly as a kid because I thought, you know, I needed to focus and do something kind of expert. I would actually 
probably do it differently now because I think there's lots of added value from broader education bases. Because you studied at Plymouth, right? Uh, yeah, so I was a human bioscience undergraduate at Plymouth. Yeah. And then I became a legal student in Bristol uh, uh, before I then started practicing law. Yeah. Um, uh, and um, But then the jobs of the future, you know, I don't think they're going to look much different to today. I'm not one of these people <laughs> that thinks that like everyone's job is just going to like be made redundant and suddenly you want to know how to use a quantum computer, which by the way doesn't doesn't really exist. Um, I think it's just the way we work will change. And to take my own example, mm. you know, I, when I was a lawyer at BT, um, I had to look at terms and conditions or contracts and highlight risk. Um, or I was the kind of expert on consumer law. So anyone building a product or launching a product would, they were worried about what the European, European Commission might think about consumer law. They would say, you know, Darren Jones would know the answer to that. And I would have, used to have to read very large documents and go over to Brussels and, kind of have all of that information in my head, I'm not, I wouldn't need to do either of those things in the next five years because those product people would be able to have a text-based system on their computer that says, hey, I'm building this product. What does that mean for consumer law? And the system would be able to do exactly what I did better. Uh, and so the nature of my work would be different, but businesses are still going to need lawyers, right? Yeah. So I just think most jobs will probably still kind of be the same jobs. It's just how we do them will be different. At all. Yeah, totally. I, I think that's true. But then, you know, you've had BT in the last few weeks announced 55,000 job cuts, right? Like it's, and, and stuff like that is, it's strange because I, it's part of the reason I do the podcast, right? I don't think it gets actually picked up in that kind of political debate perhaps as much as it should be at the moment because these are, um, these are massive issues. But this is the efficiency point. Yeah. As opposed to the nature of your job point. So to extend my example, BT would need fewer lawyers, I suspect, because yeah. each lawyer could do more and in theory then probably get paid more because the money would go around better. Um, I, I commented recently on the impact on the public sector. Um, you know, it's hard, but like we employ apparently 37,000 people to administer universal credit. Right? It's a digital payment. Like, I, yeah, yeah. I don't understand why we hire 37,000 people to run one payment out of Whitehall, you know, those are the types of areas where technology will be disruptive, but that's why you must engage with workers from the beginning and you must have a skills policy that gives them the support to transition into the new economy and to see that as a really exciting opportunity to upgrade their skills and probably earn more and have more fulfilling work in the future. Um, to talk about creative work. This week, Apple have announced their new kind of AR, VR <laughs> headset. Yeah. What, have, you, have you played with that kind of technology before? Obviously not the Apple one, but have you played with that technology before? And what's your impressions of it? Yeah, so I've used the kind of Oculus kit that mm. um, Facebook and then Meta had. And I've used it a couple of times when I've been at their offices in San Francisco. Um, I mean, it was pretty, pretty impressive. Uh, I, I, some of the early kit I've made me feel a bit weird, like, not emotionally, but like physically, you know, operating in a digital space within a physical room. And then when you take it off and, um, so I'm kind of interested to see how people adapt to it and whether they actually like the experience or, yeah. or not. Um, I mean, the, the, the Apple stuff I thought looked great. I want to have a go on it. If it wasn't three and a half thousand quid, I'd probably buy one. Um, uh, and I'm keen to see how it, how it works. I think ultimately it's this type of stuff that will become more commonplace in the future and try applying this type of tech probably at a cheaper price point yeah. in the classroom or in the hospital. You, teachers, you know, could be delivering personalized education at the right speed for every child in the classroom. Class size numbers are therefore not really that important anymore, but how many teachers see that as an exciting opportunity that they will be able to grab as opposed to a threat. Yeah. Um, and so these consumer products, you know, are kind of fun and interesting to start with, but we are going to have to think through the policy implications of them becoming more mainstream because there is an opportunity there yeah. uh, to make things better for people. Uh, I agree with that. And obviously you were Apple Watch wearer as yep. well. <laughs> you see you over in San Francisco. What, um, what, what were you kind of over there for? What were your impressions? I've been there a fair amount. I mean, th th that, that visit, the first visit with the Oculus headset was not long after my election. Mm. I was just there to say hello, really. Um, we've been back with the select committee um, uh, to look at post-Brexit competition policy, which is a bit testy at the moment um, uh, for some of the American tech companies in the UK context. Um, 
I mean, it was kind of interesting. I, mean, I don't know if they'll like me saying it, but I mean, when we went to the Apple office, uh, it felt a little bit like you were visiting another world. I was terrified that if I like left a fingerprint on a glass window, I'd be killed by an algorithm or something. Um, the Facebook office, um, well, no one was really there anymore. So it was basically a bit of a ghost town and not really looked after very much. And then when we went to Google, uh, there was a guy on roller skates that roller skated backwards to say hello to us, had a long ponytail, great guy. I think he was British. And he had, I can't remember what his name was. We had like a really funky name, but it turned out he was actually called like Dave or something. Um, and I just thought it was interesting from experiencing each of them in their own settings. Yeah. How their kind of office structure, uh, and the corporate approach often reflected their brands. Uh, which is probably not a very interesting point, but it was just something no, I took away from the visit. See, I, I find that very interesting, which maybe says a lot about me. But um, yeah, well, well, what, what else did you learn about? Because obviously so often it gets kind of trotted out of like, yeah, we're going to make UK the next Silicon Valley, except yeah. being out there, seeing it up close. I don't necessarily think we should copy it, but what, just what were your reflections? Well, given the challenges in San Francisco, I don't want the UK to right. be like the next San Francisco. It sounds pretty bad, actually, on a whole host of levels. Um, I think maybe what, I think it was Jeremy Hunt that said that, wasn't it? I think, but I think what he's maybe saying is we want to create an environment in the UK where innovation can flourish and we secure lots of investment and people want to come here to start um, and build great businesses. We all share that ambition. Um, to kind of build a little bit on my whole thing about kind of incentives, I just, I just don't think at the moment that we have the right inclusive economic framework within the UK for, for everybody to have the opportunity to take part in that. And you're not going to get a kind of grassroots built innovation ecosystem top down. Yeah. Uh, we can't just create it from Whitehall because Whitehall's, Whitehall's great in many ways, but it's rubbish at building products and it's rubbish at just like, can't just deliver the UK becoming the Silicon Valley of Europe. Mm. I mean, it's just not possible. We should be honest with ourselves about that, but we just need to find the right policy points and levers to create an inclusive economic market opportunity, um, for people of this country to want to innovate um, and to take risk and to take those opportunities. And that doesn't exist yet. And what are, what are the incentives, right? Because part of it in the States is status, right? You know, mm-hmm. like maybe almost too much the way that some of the technology founders are put on pedestals. But how do we create those incentives here in the UK? I think there's a whole, there's a whole host of things that would need to change. It's kind of a big puzzle as opposed yeah. to just one silver bullet. Um, I mean, I often think about my constituents, you know, if one of my constituents had a great idea, would they know how to turn it into a business or where to go to get support to do that? Probably not. The university in Bristol is now much better at spin outs and the kind of connection to London around VC capital is, is better, but it's still a really small group that operate in that, in that space. If you're a public sector worker listening to this podcast about innovation at work, you know, public sector workers will be the people that will know how to innovate the efficiencies because they do the job every day. There's no point hiring, you know, a big consultancy or hiring a czar in Westminster to tell public sector workers how to make their lives easier. Ask them. Yeah. But do they have the opportunity if you're a nurse to go somewhere and say, I've got this great idea and to be supported, not just supported to put the idea forward, but incentivized for you to drive it. I would love to have a system where, you know, if a nurse came up with an idea, we help them turn that into their own business, protect their IP for free. You know, give them the opportunity to go through the Crown Commercial Service and get a contract in the NHS to build a business for themselves, to give them that drive to want to want to do it, or even to operate it within the public sector as a public service employee whose job goes from being a nurse to managing a service function. You know, none of that infrastructure exists. And it's not it's not expensive big ticket stuff. Yeah. It's not top down. It has to be bottom up. Um, what are the most exciting companies you've seen in Bristol? Oh uh, well, Bristol's I mean, I would say this was like Bristol, <laughs> Bristol's brilliant. Um, uh, we have lots of great, I mean, we, we, in my bit of the city, we have a really exciting aerospace sector. Yeah. Um, you know, huge legacy and heritage right from the very beginning of, um, flights, uh, who are working on you know, hydrogen, uh, low emission technologies. Um, there's a great company, uh, called Vertical that's doing kind of taxi takeoff. Uh, we've got a new, um, aerospace battery manufacturing site in the north of my, uh, just north of my constituency. So kind of aerospace and the tech around the aerospace sector is really exciting. Yeah. 
Um, in the broader region, we've got companies like GraphCore, you know, um, working in kind of uh, GPU AI compound semiconductors, which is you know, really, really exciting stuff and internationally competitive. Creative sector is an enormous part of the city, um, which will be very disrupted by AI. And I hope we will be able to seize the opportunity of that for the future of the local economy. Um, and I could go on and on and on, but there are lots of, <laughs> there are lots of great businesses. And one of the great jobs of being an MP is you're allowed to just go around and be nosy, um, and <laughs> see these things, which is great fun to do on Fridays. Uh, definitely. Right. We've just got a few kind of quick fires, right? Get very nervous about quick fires because it might expose the fact that I don't know anything about popular culture. <laughs> <laughs> we did chat before with your team and they said football is not a strong suit. So we've, we've left. I know what a football it. is, but that's about, <laughs> that's the, ex about the extent it. of it. Yeah. Well, yes. Cause that was one of, one of the sort of, this is not so much quick fire, but on, on the liaison committee. Yeah. You know, you're quite young on, on there at kind of 36, yep. right, to be there. So we were talking about you being the Jude Bellingham of the liaison committee. That means um, nothing to me <laughs> at all. <laughs> you're a very young gun footballer. Oh, okay. Um, right. what's, yeah, what, what was that like? Cause you, you also, you, you were the one that sort of informed Boris Johnson that, you know, by the time he finished the liaison committee, he was <laughs> yeah. going to go back and have half the cabinet tell him that it was up. Yeah. Yeah. I felt a little bit bad. I mean, he needed to go, obviously, which was my earlier point. But yeah. Um, yeah, look, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a young select committee chairman. Um, but that's not just, a... just on that. Do you ever feel bad sometimes for PM or companies like PNO, Amazon, and so on that have really struggled? Yeah, I mean, on a human level, of course. Yeah. Um, and you know, I'm not someone that's spiteful or trying to just kind of showboat yeah. the social media figures. Like, it's not my style. But these people are in senior positions and they should be accountable for their behavior and their actions. And it's my job to hold them to account. So, you know, I do feel on a human level, sorry for some people, some of the time, but if you take a senior job like that, you, you've got to be take it, take it on the chin, haven't you? Anyway, sorry, I interrupted. You were talking about being in, uh, the Jude Bellingham of the uh, select liaison committee. Uh, I thought, oh, kind of. Um, so I, I thought I was the youngest member, the youngest chair of a select committee until I realized that William Ragg was actually younger than I am uh, uh, by a year. So I, I wasn't able to claim that title. <laughs> and these days, select committee chairs are elected by the House. In the old days, they were dished out as favors yeah. via the whip's office to people that hadn't become ministers, basically, because you get paid and you get a travel budget. So there's certain privileges that you could kind of keep people happy with. Um, but because of the election process, mm -hmm. we've ended up electing younger uh, chairmen and women. So Alyssa Cairns, for example, on the Foreign yeah. Affairs Committee, um, you know, if it, I'm sure, what am I saying? If it was dished out from the whip's office in the old days, she probably wouldn't be chair of the foreign affairs committee, but because there was a vote, she is. And likewise me, I mean, we would probably not be in the positions we were in were it, were it not for that. So the age profile is coming down a, a little bit. So I'm, I'm not exceptional in any way. Um, okay. A few of the quick fires. Mm -hmm. Um, what was your first job? My first job other than a newspaper round mm -hmm. was in shoe fair, uh, where I live still in a village called Shirehampton in my constituency yeah. on a Saturday where I could only work for four hours a week by law and I was paid £2.48 an hour. Why could you only work four hours? Because of my age, I think. I was, right. I was, what was I, maybe 15, 16, okay. something like that? Yeah. Um, what would be, putting aside politics, what would be your dream job? Mm, well, do anything. So, based on my experience, I mean, I would love to obviously work either on climate change or tech which yeah. is the reason I talk a lot about both of these things because I genuinely am passionate about them. If I got to have another go in life, um, I'm quite creative. You know, I, I like the idea of being an artist or an architect. Mm -hmm. I was a musician for quite a long time. I don't really get time to do any of that anymore. Be nice what to instruments do, do you play? Uh, I only play one properly, uh, although now probably not as well as I used to. So I was a saxophonist. Okay. Um, uh, and I uh, play piano a bit and wrote and conducted music and stuff. Um, which I really enjoy doing, but sadly I don't have the time for any of that yeah, fun yeah. stuff anymore. Well, being a yeah, politician, young kids. Um, what's your, probably something else you have much time for, favorite book? Well, actually, uh, my favorite book at the moment is Why Nations Fail. Oh, yeah. By a fellow Darren, uh, which is not a common name, although his is spelt. Um, you were the first Darren ever to be elected a politician. I was, but again, not exceptionally so, because there's now uh, a conservative called Darren Henry from Brockstow. Um, and one of us will have to become the first knighted Darren at some point. 
and maybe one of the first Darrens in the House of Lords. But we've got a lot of to, a lot to a lot to aim for. Um, so, Why Nations Fail is the book I'm reading at the moment, and it's a fascinating historical assessment about a lot of what we've been talking about today about inclusive economic structures for driving economic growth and innovation. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, uh, an amazing book. Um, favorite video game? I don't play video games. Well, when, when you were younger, I mean, I was. I think because I get I get distracted quite quickly, and the only video game I've ever completed was Pokemon on the Game Boy oh, yeah. over a summer holidays. So I had like a PlayStation quite late on. I came from quite a poor family. So like we couldn't, yeah. we couldn't really afford to play stuff, buy stuff. I remember like friends of mine at primary school when the first PlayStation came out and they had Tekken and stuff. I remember playing it with them, but like we never owned it myself in the house. So uh, I don't, yeah, I don't have many answers to the question because you know, small violin because we couldn't afford <laughs> video games. So well, next one, Nando's or Pizza Express? Uh, probably Pizza Express because I am, I try to be vegan as much as possible. Mm -hmm. I'm happy to be veggie and there's a lot of chicken in Nando's, which is not really my thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so. it's, it's kind of thing. Uh, do you own any cryptocurrency? No. Um, if all the Labour Prime Ministers were in a room, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, etc., who do you think would win Monopoly? The ones that are alive? No, all of them from all of Oh, that's a great, great question. So Ramsey McDonald, Clement Attlee. I kind of assumed because he was such a brilliant Chancellor Gordon Brown. Sure, yeah. But he might lose his temper with Tony at some point and then throw the board on the floor. I don't know. Exactly. We had fun brainstorming answers this morning. <laughs> Who is your favourite Labour Prime Minister? Well, there's so few of them, mm. which is one of the great tragedies, really. I'm hoping we'll have another one soon. Um, I... I obviously only know Tony and Gordon because I'm not that old. Um, and um, I think they're both great and they've both been great mentors and supporters of mine over the years. Um, why Why do you think Keir Starmer didn't? I don't know. You'd have to ask him. Well, I'll invite him on at some stage. What would be your advice um, to a young person wanting to get involved in politics? Work hard, seize the opportunities, um, but don't base your whole life on it because most of the time it's down to good luck. And what advice would you give a younger Darren? Probably to have chilled out a bit more when you were younger. Because I always wanted to be an MP. I was always very well behaved and worked too hard. Very true. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. We'll Pleasure. let you go, Bo. Thanks for listening to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. We've come a long way since our first episode, when I started recording this on my own in my daughter's nap times. We are now a team that not only pulls together a podcast, but also creates content on multiple channels, whether that is our Substack, looking at the latest trends in business, entrepreneurship, and the future of work, or some of our more lighthearted takes on TikTok. And of course, our best moments are on YouTube. To find all our socials and best content links, click on the links in the show notes below.